and welcome to Sign of the Crime. This is Remy Ramirez. This is Q McGrath. And we learned this morning that Angela Lansbury of Murder, She Wrote fame passed away yesterday. So I'm in mourning. I'll be wearing black for the foreseeable future. Literally 10 minutes ago, Quintana, I called Quintana to find out what the fuck was happening with her internet because we, I was like, she lost power. Anyway, other story. And she was literally crying. I was like, oh my God, because I had texted her. Did you not know about my obsession with Angela Lansbury? It's not a secret. Of course I know. Of course I know. Yes. When we were little, cute. I like how I'm like talking like there's another person there, <laughs> <laughs> like telling them a story. Anyway, fine. I'm just going to go with it. When Q was little, like, I don't know, six, seven, um, The show started in 84 and I think... 84 or 85 and like i've been on that shit since go quintana would solve that shit so fast i was so good yeah (laughs) i was so good yeah quintana would solve she would be like it's blah blah she's like seven (laughs) and mom was like i don't know if that's funny or scary and i'm like it really depends on my mood (laughs) (laughs) but it was so sweet that you were you were really crying I fucking loved her. I mean, I love her. I still love her. Whatever form she's in now, I still love her. I mean, she was not what they would call a conventional beauty. Uh, She didn't give a fuck. She was just like, nope, I am smart and I want to be an actress and I'm going to do my own shiz. And like, and she lived in Ireland, which is tight. Yeah, she was living in, she lived in LA. I mean, you know, she went between LA and New York and then she moved to Ireland when like just the shit fell out from under her. Her kids, both her kids were having drug issues at the time. Oh. She was hurting for work and she was like, you know what? <laughs> Pace. And she left and she became like a, she started gardening. <laughs> you know, she God. basically pulled a murder. She wrote, she pulled a Jessica Fletcher. She was like, I'm out. I'm going to go live my happy little life. And like, they would approach her with big projects and she'd be like, eh, no, but then she would come back and do other ones. You know, and every time they counted her out, every time they were like, oh, your career's done. She's like, psych, now I'm Mrs. Potts. How about that? Oh, did you know that I had a fucking one-liner off in the new, um, that Emily Blunt, Mary Poppins? You didn't know that? Oh, I did. Nice. Anyway, moving on. (laughs) Because I'm Angela fucking Lansbury and I do what I want. Angela fucking Lansbury, dude. She honestly... What an icon. What a life. She lived to be 96, not 97, as I thought. Quintana corrected me right away. I corrected that shit. I was like, (laughs) no, if I'd gotten another year with her, I would have been thrilled. My favorite Angela Lansbury quote is when someone asked her, like, what was it about this character that made you think, you know, that you could really play this about? You can't hear me? No. What is that sound? That banging sound? Oh, that's my um, that's my pipes. That's my heat. No, because my house was built in 1890. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) what the fuck it literally yeah. sounds like someone took yeah. two pots well, and clanked have, them together because the, i mean have you not you see those big giant i mean you, you've seen them the heaters in my house that are covered by those wooden rattan things yes yeah, yeah. it looks it looks like um an old timey it looks like a space heater but enormous organ or something well it looks like i mean if you have like a little space heater imagine it much bigger made out of like iron uh, that's what they are. And they cover them up because they're ugly and they're huge. And they've been with the house since 1890. Oh God. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, your house is definitely haunted by the way. 
Oh, absolutely. 100% for sure. Weird things happen all the time. But as far as I can tell, they are friendly ghosts. Angela Lansbury, you are free to haunt me. Please do. My God, can you imagine? Please do. Come put a chip in one of my teapots and I'll know it's you. That's all I'm saying. What if you were just like alone in the house and all of a sudden you heard someone being like, do, 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 you know? I would be thrilled. It's like the ghost of Lansbury. Absolutely thrilled. I feel like in death, she must know of my love for her since she didn't know it in life. But as I was saying, the best quote, they were asking her like, what was it about this character that made you believe this show would be a success? And like the the tone behind that was because nobody thought it would be because you were an old woman. Right. Totally. <laughs> and she was like, she's like, it really wasn't anything about the character I believed in. I believed in me. I was like, that's mm, that's that's mm. the same fucking energy that Oprah brings, dude. She says the same shit. She's like, I don't have to worry about failure because I know that I will always succeed. Me. I me. me. I invest in me. Dude, and those those people, but especially those women, since we've been told from the beginning of time that like we are not worthy of being invested in, dudes, if this upsets you, cry about it. Like, I love those women. Those women, I just want to sit at their feet and have them tell me stories because those women have the coolest fucking stories. Yeah. Anyway, it was always one of my dreams to sit at Angela Lansbury's feet and have her tell me stories while she made me tea because, you know, she was she was uh, from the other side of the pond and her accent was amazing. So I was going to say, I never knew that because of course not. She had a flawless American accent. Yeah. (laughs) Damn. Oh, RIP. Yeah, I know. All those people out there who are like, Americans don't have accents. We do. It's, <laughs> I'm just letting you know. We have accents and they're funny. <laughs> Lol. Okay, are you ready? Yeah, let's do this shit. Okay, so uh, for those of you who don't know, we are doing part two of Princess Diana. And when last we met, uh, we were we were at the Ritz in Paris. Putting on the Ritz, you know? Putting on the Ritz. Well, it didn't work out for Diana. Um, So... Henri Paul, it's spelled Henry, H-E-N-R-I, but every documentary I saw, they pronounced it Henri. So I'm going to honor Henri by pronouncing his name correctly and not being an American. Uh, So Henri Paul, the deputy head of security at the Ritz, had been instructed to drive the couple in a hired black armored Mercedes Benz uh, in order to loot the paparazzi. A decoy vehicle left the Ritz first from the main entrance, which attracted a thong. A a thong? Well, wow. (laughs) Wow. That's not... (laughs) How dare you? That I meant to say. (laughs) A throng. Also, people, uh, my child brought home a germ last week that, uh, and this is the child that does not get sick. And she was sick for two days, which means I will be sick for two to three calendar weeks, just so everybody knows, uh, which is why I sound like this. Um, A throng, not a thong. (laughs) Photographers. I wonder what that would look like. Diana and Dodie then departed the hotel's rear entrance a little after midnight on August. Remind me who Dodie is. That was her dude. Okay. Cody Fayed was her dude who died with her in the car. Yep. Uh, they left a little after midnight on August 31st, and they were heading for the apartment in Paris that Dodie's father owned. They did this to avoid the nearly 30 photographers that were waiting in the front of the hotel. Dodie and Diana were the rear passengers. Trevor Reese Jones, a member of the Fayed family's personal protection team, was in the front passenger seat. The occupants, other than Reese Jones, were not wearing seatbelts. Okay, so there is some back and forth here. There are sources that say that no one was wearing a seatbelt. Um, but Reese Jones survived, so take that for what it's worth. So after leaving the Rue, Rue Cambon, you went to France. How do you pronounce that shit? You've got that, girl. Okay. You've got it. 
Anyway, Camden, if you're American, uh, and crossing the Pla, Plas, Place, Place. Pla, that is it, girl. Yes, Pla. <laughs> I have a goal. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, after crossing a street uh, that looks like it's probably pronounced Concord at some point, they drove along the Cor la Reine. Nice. I, that's Spanish. I'm staying. I'm sticking with rain. Um, and Cor Albert. Uh, the embankment road along the right side of the River Seine into the Alma underpass. So at 12.23, Henri Paul lost control of the car at the entrance to the Alma underpass. The car struck a passing white Fiat, swerved to uh, the left of the two-lane carriageway, and collided head-on with the 13th pillar that supported the roof as there were no guardrails. It was traveling at an estimated speed at 105 kilometers per hour, which is about 65 miles per hour for those of us on this side of the pond. And that was almost twice the legal speed limit. Mm. It spun, hit the stone wall of the tunnel backwards and came to a stop. This impact caused substantial damage, particularly to the front half of the vehicle. Witnesses arriving shortly after the crash reported smoke immediately. And they also reported that photographers on motorcycles swarmed the Mercedes sedan before it entered the tunnel. So she was trying to get away from photographers, but that didn't work out. Uh, With the four occupants still in the wrecked car, the photographers who had been driving slower and were some distance behind the Mercedes reached the scene. Some rushed to help. They tried to open up the doors and aid the victims, but most of them took pictures. God. Police arrived around 10 minutes after the crash at 1230 a.m. and an ambulance was on site just a few minutes later, according to witnesses. One French radio station reported that a photographer was beaten by witnesses who were horrified by the scene, which have you seen the scene? No. Okay. I should send you some pictures. It's amazing. Anyone lived in that crash. That thing looked like it was ripped apart accordion style. Wow. Um, it, it is it is awful. Five of the photographers were arrested immediately and schlepped down to the police station. Later, two others were detained and around 20 rolls of film were taken directly from the photographers. Oh. Police also immediately impounded their vehicles. Reese Jones was still conscious with multiple serious facial injuries and a head contusion, probably from the front airbags as they had functioned normally. Diana, who had been sitting in the right rear passenger seat, was also still conscious, but she was critically injured. The crash mostly affected the right hand side of her body, indicating that she was sitting sideways in her seat at the time of impact. Her ribs and arm were fractured and her right collarbone was dislocated and she suffered from swelling and bruising to the brain. Mm. She was reported to murmur repeatedly, oh, my God. And after the photographers and other helpers were pushed away by police, leave me alone. Mm. In June 2007, the Channel 4 documentary Diana, the Witness in the Tunnel, claimed that the first person to touch Diana was off-duty physician Frederick. You've got it. Malgez. That's it. Who just chanced upon the scene. I am not going to try that last name again. Frederick reported that Diana had no visible injuries, which seems odd since she had a broken arm and a dislocated collarbone, but did state that she was in shock. She was reported to have been extremely disturbed and removed an IV drip by force while shouting incoherently. I have no idea if that's true, but that's that's what people say. After being sedated and removed from the car at 1 a.m., she went into cardiac arrest and following external cardiopulmonary resuscitations, which I'm pretty sure is just CPR, her heart started beating again. She was moved to the ambulance at 1.18 a.m., left the scene at 1.41 and arrived at the hospital at 2.06 a.m. I have the name. I'm not even going to try. Of the hospital? <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. No, not even a try it. Uh, Fayed had been sitting in the left rear passenger seat and was pronounced dead shortly after emergency techs arrived on the scene. Uh, Paul was also pronounced dead on removal from the wreckage. Both were taken directly to the Paris mortuary, not to a hospital. Paul was later found to have a blood alcohol level of 1.75 grams per liter of blood, which is about 3.5 times the legal limit in France. So he was technically drunk. That's the driver. The driver. Yeah. I know from marrying into an Irish family that you can have a high blood alcohol content and not be extremely drunk or at least not seem that way. (laughs) And there is something to be, I mean, you've met his family. Was he Irish? No, I'm just saying, but he was French. I'm sorry. Does that, I mean, have you seen, if there are French people out there, God love you. I've seen y'all drink wine. I've never seen anything like it. Um, There's something to be said for, for tolerance levels, but he was by legal standards, three sheets to the wind. Diana's injuries were extensive and resuscitation attempts, including cardiac massage, were unsuccessful. Her heart had been displaced to the right side of the chest, which tore the upper left pulmonary vein and pericardium. So the deal is that they when they were treating her. I think that this is standard for everywhere, but in France at the time, it was definitely standard to get the patient stabilized before you transported them to the hospital. If they had immediately transported her, there is a slight chance she could have been saved. But the fact that they took so long trying to get her stabilized before they brought her to the hospital pretty much ensured her death because <sighs> her heart just couldn't take that. It was so damaged. Yeah. Right. So Diana died at the hospital at 3 a.m. on August 31st, 1997. Uh, The anesthesiest announced her death at 6 a.m. at a news conference held at the hospital. Later that morning, French Prime Minister Lionel Jospin, Jospin, I don't know, (laughs) and Interior Minister (laughs) Jean-Pierre Chevonmet. Yes. Chevonmet. 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 Visited the hospital, and that afternoon, Diana's former husband, Charles, who was then the Prince of Wales, and her two older sisters, Lady Sarah McCorkadale and Lady Jane Fellows, arrived in Paris. The group visited the hospital along with French President Jacques Chirac. I mean, wow. Oh, oh my God. Can you imagine? Can you please have another kid and name them Jacques Chirac? (laughs) Jacques Chirac. And thank the doctors for trying to save her life. Charles accompanied Diana's body to the UK later that same day. They departed from an airport, an airbase that I'm not even going to try to say, and landed at uh, RAF North Holt and a bearer party from the Queen's Colors Squadron transferred Diana's coffin, which was draped with the royal standard, uh, which is like a, a flag with an ermine border to a hearse. Her remains were finally taken to the Hammersmith and Fulham Mortuary in London for a postmortem examination. Initial media reports stated Diana's car had collided with the pillar at 120 miles per hour and that the speedometer's needle had jammed at that position, which I I think was the evidence upon which they were basing the suspicion that like that high speed. But it was it was later announced that the car's speed collision was 59 to 68. That might also have something to do with the fact that we're that might have been an American thing. I'm wondering if that was an American thing, because if someone said to me, oh, 100 or 110 per hour, I'd be like miles. But they meant kilometers. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was later announced the car speed upon collision was 59 to 68, which is much lower, but still about um, twice as fast as the speed of 31 miles per hour, which was listed. And if that seems oddly specific, that is because I'm transposing from kilometer from kilometer. Yeah. That's right. I don't know. Kilometers. 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 God, I'm tired. <laughs> I kilometers. Like that, that is like the Halloween version. Kilometers. Kilometers. Oh, you're right. Yeah. I'm timely. Tis yeah. the season. Mm-hmm. 
uh, the U.S. doesn't believe in logic, so we will not be switching the metric system, and I will be talking about Mal's Prayer for the rest of my life. Anyway, I'm not judging, by the way. I love being special and different <laughs> and a little bit difficult. I'm just stating a fact. You do love being a little bit difficult. I do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There were obviously going to be investigations into Diana's death, both official and unofficial, um, because her partner at the time was a billionaire's son with endless resources. There was the investigation his father, Mohammed Fayed, funded. There was the official French investigation, and there was an investigation done by the British. Not to mention the fact that every Nancy Drew and Sherlock Holmes across the world were putting in their two cents. I mean, you can still go to TikTok or Facebook or whatever. There are endless amounts of posts about diana and what people think happened theories um yeah i dare you to go to reddit and leave with your sense of justice and peace intact but uh for the sake of sanity and brevity i'm just going to give you a rundown of the official friends investigation and then we'll talk a little bit about how the other investigations compared so first of all let's start with the fact that there was this immediate emotional public backlash against the press Many, many people felt that Princess Diana had died because she was trying to escape the incessant stream of cameras that were always on her. That's what I remember. Yeah. And there's no doubt that Diana spent most of her adult life right smack in the middle of a press firestorm. Photographers were pretty open about the fact that Diana was a one woman business from a journalist perspective. There were photographers in the 80s and 90s making a million pounds a year on Diana alone. So she was not just a princess. She was an industry And while she expressed a lot of frustration about being forced into the public lair the way that she was, she did eventually learn how to manipulate that power to her benefit when she wanted to. And that doesn't mean that she condoned or enjoyed these cameras being shoved in her face all the time. I think she just figured that since it was going to happen anyway, she might as well use the invasion of her privacy to show off, you know, her rock star figure and make her exes jealous. Girl. I get it. You know? Uh, Yeah. I'm not mad at it. Um, No. But since she was known to occasionally make use of the cameras that were always pointed in her direction, the photographers felt that they had carte blanche to go to whatever links they could to get access to her, which is what what does carte blanche mean? They had uh, a free pass. Okay. I believe that carte blanche is French. So. (laughs) And you did Um, such a good job pronouncing it. And because they (laughs) taught it in school. Did you take French? God, no. Fuck no. But I'm an English major. I was an English major. <laughs> I have a master's in English. You're supposed to know these little pretty turns of phrases. And I do. Oh, okay. Well, um, I didn't know that one. Well, that's because your major is in poetry. So, you know. Creative writing. How dare you? But isn't that what you did? Poetry? I did. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can get a master's in poetry, but why not? You know, this is a great question. I, I don't see any. Re- I'm not. I wouldn't be upset about that. Um. Anyway, yeah, they had carte blanche to do whatever they want to do to get access to her, which we've discussed. It was pretty disgusting, the things they did to get pics of her. But in interviews with them, the party line was like, you know, she knew what she was getting herself into. I was just doing my job. If it wasn't me, it would have been somebody else. All the bullshit. Honestly, all the bullshit that they fucking there's the lack of accountability. Accountability. Who's she? Yeah. No, it's it's so it's so infuriating, honestly. You know, it was interesting. I, I mean, um, again, Discovery Plus has a fantastic documentary about the death of Princess Diana, and they had a lot. They took pictures of all the journalists. They showed all the all the journalists, and they interviewed a lot of them for this. All men. Oh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, um, and I, I mean, I'm I'm sure there are female photographers and journalists out there doing this. I didn't see any of them there. They were all men. Um, so you know, take that for what it's worth. 
Their old tried and true excuse was we wouldn't be taking these pictures if people weren't buying the magazines, which, you know, is not wrong. Um, nevertheless, after the accident, there was a solid faction of the public that felt the paparazzi was at fault for Diana's death, and they were very vocal about it. This became a reckoning of sorts for the paparazzi, and it established the idea that the paparazzi was not entitled to unfettered access to anyone they wanted. I can't believe that's something that had to be, like, put forth as an idea, but... That's exactly what I mean. (laughs) What do you mean we can't take pics of you with your boobs out on a private island? Yeah. Yeah. Um, This is an idea we still go back and forth on today. Many celebrities take issue with the lengths photographers go to to get pictures. But in the 80s and 90s, that shit was cray. The journalists themselves admit that they bugged phones. They broke into voicemail. They broke into people's homes. Crazy shit. Uh, And they got away with it. But not only did they get away with it, they got rich off of it. Yeah. Um, Diana's death kind of brought this to a screeching halt, you know, because suddenly people saw how the sausage was made and that there could definitely be consequences of following people around and hounding them to their literal death. Um, But when people started looking at how the accident occurred, they stopped blaming the press entirely. And there began to be a lot of talk about conspiracy. In fact, in the months after the accident, a shocking 85% of Great Britain believed that Diana's death had been arranged in some way by someone and that the accident was not an accident. And because this car crash took place in Paris, the French had the first bite at the apple. Their investigation yielded a lot of mundane details typical of a car accident. As we already went over, they determined the speed was a factor and that Henri Paul was legally drunk. These two facts were not without controversy because, again, as we said, originally the media reported the car was going 120 miles per hour and people thought that it was suspicious that they changed the speed so drastically upon a more critical review. And there was a lot of pushback on the idea that Henri Paul was as was drunk as reported by the ME. His friends and family argued that he was not careless or stupid and he would never drive anyone drunk, much hmm. less the former Princess of Wales. Hmm. But official medical reports allegedly show he was quite drunk. And he had both antidepressants and antipsychotics in his system, which could oh. have added to his inebriation. Yeah. Um, was he did his family. So we're going to get into that. So he had driven Diana around that day and then he had been released from duty in the evening and then called back three hours later. So perhaps he was drinking in that time off because he thought he was off for the evening. But his family denies that those allegations. At least one person at the hotel who saw Henri claims that he looked drunk and was, quote, walking like a clown. But there's video footage that shows him looking normal and sure-footed walking around the hotel. His family denied he was taking antipsychotic medication and denied emphatically that he would ever have agreed to drive anyone while he was drunk. A wreath at his funeral bore the banner, We Know the Truth. The investigation also revealed that the Mercedes had come into contact with a white Fiat Uno, which they know for sure because there was paint transfer. This is the part that gets me. Despite an exhaustive search, the authorities reportedly were never able to conclusively name who was the driver that hit Diana's car. Many believe it's a man named Lee Van Tun. Uh, Lee, maybe L-E, new word, V-A-N, new word, T-H-A-N-H. He drove a white Fiat Uno at the time. Eyewitness reports seeing a man matching his description with a muzzled Rottweiler in the back, which he was also known to own, speeding out of the Alma Tunnel not long after the crash happened. Additionally, his father admitted that hours after the accident, Tan woke up his mechanic brother and asked him to repaint part of the car that was apparently damaged. Oh, okay. Well, case closed. Well, the French officials say that they tested the paint on Tan's car and there are reports that it matched. 
They brought him in for six hours worth of questioning and then let him go. And he was never arrested. And that was pretty much it until recently when he was approached by several magazines around the 24th anniversary of Diana's death a couple months ago. And he suddenly changed his tune and told the reporters, nothing in life is free. And if they want his full story about what really happened that night in the Alma Tunnel, he wants $2.5 billion. He also confirmed that he was told by French officials to stay out of Great Britain because laws were different there. And while he was in no trouble in France, he could have some legal woes in England. So I imagine we will probably be hearing about his tragic and unexpected death relatively soon. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, it's not illegal to fucking flee the scene? I... Yeah, no, it is. (laughs) Which is why... uh, And my... But the other thing is that they never announced that this was the guy. Officially, they have never found this car. Unofficially, we're all like, um, this guy, right? Seems weird that they wouldn't. It seems like they would want to be on top of this. It's the fucking princess. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, you would think that. Um, now we're going to talk about a guy that, that might explain a little bit about why this dude has been quiet for 25 years. And that guy's name is James Andenson. James Andenson was a French journalist who, along with a throng of others, originally claimed he was following Diana that you mean night. A, you mean a thong? A thong of others. Yes. Yeah. He was part of the thong. <laughs> uh, he also claimed that he managed to get some pictures of the crash before police and emergency medical staff arrived. He did not claim this to police, but evidently to his friends, one of whom dropped a dime, dime on him to the cops. Snitches get stitches. Um who called him in. Did you say to, snitches get snitches? I sure do. And I live by that shit. Did um, you say stitches or did you say snitches get snitches get stitches? I think you said snitches get snitches. I don't, well, I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> just, that was an accident. I mean, I, I mean, I think you did say that, but I think it's amazing. I think but I mean, I meant snitches get stitches, but I think also snitches get snitches. It's like a car. It's like, a, it's like from the Bodhisattva, you know, it's like, Oh a, Yeah. It's just like snitches get snitches. Get snitches, you know. To the cops, he claimed that he was at home, almost 200 miles away from Paris at the time of the accident. And he was able to provide some kind of receipts that satisfied their suspicions. But I'm going to say I don't I don't think it took much. Um, They they had, had they had their eyes on the other guy. Yeah, they had their eyes on the other guy. And they apparently when it there's just a lot of like see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Like when it comes to this, it's a lot of weird shit. So, but James couldn't keep his mouth shut. He keeps running his mouth, boasting that he has all these amazing photos that would eventually prove exactly what happened to Diana. And though he was known to be quite a storyteller, there were those that began to suspect that not only was James there, that he might've had a hand in Diana's murder. Mm. It didn't help that he had a white Fiat Uno that he sold right after Diana's death. Oh, fuck. And then in May of 2000, he was found dead inside his car, <gasps> which was on fire. <gasps> the, the car was found near a military training ground and was fully engulfed in flames when found, as was James Addison's body, which could, coincidentally had a large hole in the side of his head. Oh, the police claim the hole was caused by the heat of the fire. No, but they didn't really clarify how that logic works. That's actually not how it works. <laughs> They also claimed that James had left a virtual note of sorts confirming his intention to kill himself, but they never produced that note or any evidence of it. His lungs showed evidence of carbon monoxide, proving that he was breathing while he was in the car. And the police determined that he had set the car on fire, Oh, gotten inside of it, sure, 
locked it yes. and apparently waited to die in the most horrid and gruesome way I could personally think of. Wow. But their official determination was suicide, oh. which is wow, not suspicious at all. Oh <laughs> my God. Yeah. So another eyewitness claimed that he saw a motorcycle speed up besides the Mercedes um, point what looked like a long lens camera, not at Diana, but at the driver on Ray Paul and use a massive flash. This man claimed that it wasn't a normal flash. It was a like much brighter and like frenetic, like a series of unnaturally <gasps> bright lights that oh. he claims didn't look like the flash from a camera so much as some kind of like a weapon intended to dazzle or blind its victim. Oh. An investigative television program recreated this flash in the actual tunnel using both a camera flash and what I mean, it appears there actually is a weapon that is like this. It's a flash weapon that is used in various nefarious endeavors. And the witness emphatically claimed that the light that came from the flash weapon was the light he saw the night of the crash. Mm. The police's comment on that was that no one else was willing to back up this man's claims and you can't prove a flash. <sighs> so uh, ideally, the survivor, Trevor Reese Jones, would be able to give some details about what happened, but he couldn't really remember very much. He does say that he recalls a light colored automobile cutting them off in the tunnel. And that's pretty much it. So he wasn't much help. So the French investigators determined after an 18-month investigation that the accident was caused by an inebriated driver and speed. The finding had the advantage of blaming a dead man and wrapped everything up pretty neatly. Of course, it did not satisfy everyone. And one of the people it did not satisfy was Mohammed Al-Fayed, who was convinced that the royal family was behind the death, specifically Philip and Charles. And he wasn't quiet about it, which caused quite a stir. Uh, Mr. Al-Fayed did not cope well with his oldest child's death, mm -hmm. and he was known to be very emotional about what he felt was his son's collateral damage murder. He felt that the actual target was Diana, but he did feel that she was a target because she was dating a Muslim man and the royals didn't want a Muslim stepfather to the future king of England. Mm. Al-Fayed also claimed that Diana was in the early stages of pregnancy and was planning to marry Dodie. <sighs> Tests on Diana's blood samples supposedly show that she was not pregnant. But it is possible that if she was in the very beginning stages, the blood wouldn't show that. I know that one from, you know, personal experience. But uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed is adamant that Diana told him she was expecting Dodi's child and that she and Dodi were planning to marry. He asked for the samples to be retested and they had been lost. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So always indicative of a tight ship being run. Uh, when evidence, I mean, maybe it is a tight ship being run in exactly the way it's meant to be run. Maybe hard to know. Yeah. So Muhammad's not thrilled. And then there's the ring. There is some evidence that Dodi had purchased a ring that may have been intended to propose to Diana, but there's no proof he did that other than his father's insistence. A jeweler insisted that Diana and Dodi had chosen a ring together. And the only reason she wasn't wearing it is because it had been sent out of the country to be resized. And because, and this is my favorite part of the story, the shop in Italy that normally did the resizing shut down for vacation for the entire month of August. America could never. <laughs> um, so the ring had been sent somewhere else to be resized and had been delivered to Muhammad. We know Diana was not wearing the ring when she died and no friends of hers have gone on the record to say that she had discussed an engagement. In fact, a couple friends indicated that they believe Diana was growing bored of her dalliance with Dodi and was mostly in this relationship. Uh, to make Hasnat Khan jealous. Remember, that was like the love of her life she'd been with for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, she was a cancer. Another friend told reporters that Diana had been visiting her when she got her period a few weeks before. So there's their confirmation is that there was no issue she was pregnant. Uh, 
The issue here is that Diana was extremely paranoid about everyone and everything. And you just don't know if she was telling everyone everything. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, you know, if she was taking active measures to protect her privacy by faking a period. I mean, anyone else, I'd say that was silly. But with Diana, I get why she might feel that was necessary. Sure. I do feel like it would be a very cancer thing to do to have a world with romance and get engaged, you know, to like a rich, handsome playboy who wooed her on yachts in the spontaneous visits to foreign countries. Well, cancers you know? do love love, you know, that's part of their, right? yeah. To be honest, I'm a Capricorn and I would be like, okay, that sounds great. Um, <laughs> For a whole different reason. <laughs> for a whole different reason. I'd be like, how many carrots is that ring? Let's discuss this. Do you have an appraisal? Um, even if she'd been engaged, I can absolutely see her pulling out of that shit before sealing the deal also to be honest like, like even if she was even if she had been i could 100 percent see diana being like psych you know six months later yeah. anyway um i do her friends went on record as saying that she often said that she needed another marriage like she needed a rash on her face so you know <laughs> um, someone who has recently had a rash on her face <laughs> i would like to yeah. say uh, I think a major problem with Mohammed Al-Fayed is that he really seemed to get lost in his grief in the years preceding his son's death. Mm. He was indignant that what he felt was his son's murder seemingly became a footnote in the death of his much more famous girlfriend. I get that. Totally. Um, and he did some things that raised a few eyebrows, including building a multi-room shrine to Dodie and Diana in Herod's, where people could come and pay their respects by writing in a memory book. And wandering through was essentially a memorial to their two-month relationship. And that included, that whole thing included a large bronze statue of the two of them dancing under the wings of a large albatross bird. Oh. Uh, atop a platform that read in sizable letters, innocent victims. Wow. That, yeah, that definitely made an impression. Um his conspiracy theories got a real shot in the arm when a former member of MI6 named Richard Tomlinson showed up and announced to the police that he'd been in the room when a theoretical assassination attempt had been discussed involving using a motorcycle or a small car to drive up on the intended victim while he was in a vehicle and use this flash weapon to inc incapacitate the driver and ultimately cause a, a, a car accident or death. He suggested that Diana and Dodie may have been killed by MI6 in the same way. Richard Tomlinson had been arrested in Paris earlier in the month before Diana's death at the request of British authorities because they believed he was about to divulge secrets about MI6 by publishing a book, which, by the way, he was and he did. <laughs> he did publish this in Russia and then in Ireland. He was released, though, and sent to New Zealand. But then he came back and disclosed what he knew to Dodi Al-Fayed and to the police. So Here's the kicker. Wait, wait, wait. So he basically was like, hi, we planned this. I was in the room when it happened. No, he said, MI6 has planned a death, not for Diana. Oh, a different death. A different death. Got which it. was like, everybody was like, oh, so tell us more about the MI6 planning assassination attempts. And he was also like, he said who it was. It was like a Serbian leader. And I was like, oh, that guy's got to be like, say what? <laughs> Come again? Y'all were doing what? Anyway, here's the kicker. Sir Richard Dearlove, head of MI6 at the time, Dearlove, honestly. So British. I love the British names. Um, admitted that plans of that nature had been drafted regarding a different Eastern European official, but that the proposal had been rejected. And consequently, there was no reason to suspect that the plan had been picked up, dusted off and used to kill Diana. <laughs> of course not. Why of course, would it? Yeah. Um, in 2009, MI6 agreed to allow Tomlinson to return to Britain, unfreeze royalties from his book and drop the threat of charges. And they apologized for his mistreatment. So take that for what you will. Um, 
as we have discussed, Al-Fayed also made it very clear that he felt that Prince Philip and Prince Charles had conspired to kill Dodi and Diana. And he would say that to anyone and everyone and everyone that disagreed with him. He accused of being a part of MI6, which I, I don't know if we said this before, but that's the British intelligence agency. It's like it's their CIA. Right. It, it definitely got a little hard to watch. Um, he eventually became suspicious of tri- of the survivor, Trevor Reese Jones, as well as journalist James Odinson, who, remember, claimed to have taken damning pictures of Diana and Dodie at the crash scene and then was later discovered to be a crispy critter inside his own car. Uh, and what I think qualifies as... A crispy is- <laughs> critter? Quintana! <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, my God. Like, strangest incidents of official suicide I've ever heard of. Um Mohammed at one point believed that Odinson had some affiliation with MI6, he thought everyone did really, and was the driver of the white Fiat Uno involved in the crash. Uh, and as he did own one at the time. So, you know, um, it probably didn't help that when he died in that totally unsuspicious way, not long after running his mouth near some military land, um, that that probably didn't help the Mohammed believe in his innocence. Um, right. Muhammad never believed it was a simple car accident, and while he never really settled on exactly how he believed the royal family went about accomplishing this murder, he never wavered in his resolution that they were intimately involved with the death of his son and Diana, and he did everything he could to get that theory examined by the powers that be. And he had some some success. Um, in 2004, the British Metropolitan Police established an investigation committee known as Operation Paget to look into the many rumors surrounding the death of Princess Diana. They did this because even in 2004, 85 to 90 percent of the general public in Great Britain believed that there was more to Diana's death than a simple car accident. Yikes. Uh, So my personal opinion is that one of the major focuses of this investigation was to find a way to reassure the public that Diana's death was not a conspiracy rather than actually finding out if something nefarious had happened to her. Because if something nefarious did happen to her, Chances are <laughs> that it was on that side, like they'd done it. So I don't know this, this whole thing, we're going to go over it. We're going to talk about Operation Paget. You tell me what you think. Okay. So it, they covered the same general bases as the French investigation. So we're not going to talk about all that because, you know, we already did that, but they, they did go over a few things the French didn't. So we're going to talk about those things. They actually had a few things on their plate that the French didn't because new info had come out since Diana's death. One such piece of information was um, Diana's butler, Paul Burrell. Uh, He claimed that he had a letter that Diana had written to him expressing fear because she claimed she had inside information that led her to believe that the royal family in general and her ex-husband specifically was looking to have her killed via a car accident. No. That letter was written about 10 months before her death, which is just a wee bit suspicious and consequently the british police felt the need to interview prince charles and prince philip albeit it seemed they they did that reluctantly both charles and philip unsurprisingly insisted they had nothing to do with her death and repeated over and over again that they had no idea why she would have written such a letter and that they could be of no help but this letter was real oh no it's real oh my god Uh, The investigator who actually spoke to the princess claimed that they were objective about interviewing the members of the royal family, and they weren't really the type of people to put any stock in the value of the monarchy. Please. But they also said that they found both of the princes, particularly Charles, to be very classy and very (laughs) friendly, and they were very impressed by them. So they took them. You know what this is? This is giving Major Bundy vibes. They're like, could it possibly be this white 
fucking upstanding citizen this prince i'm sorry you're accusing this prince of something this dad how dare you how dare you sir i'm sorry have you noticed how charming he is how could he possibly (laughs) give me a fucking break well my favorite part is like in the in the documentary they're like we took them at their word like did you did you okay great yeah because that's Um, how it works because when murderers (laughs) murder they sure don't lie about it yeah, they absolutely will tell you the truth if you ask them nicely. That's right. Very objective. Mark of thoroughness, really. Um, they also acquired blood from the car seat where Diana was sitting when the crash occurred. They took the car out of out of its holding place so they could do that. So they could mostly unequivocally rule out the possibility that she was pregnant. And that's a big thing. Again, that's if you believe them. Uh, Fayed does not. Um, they also took a look at James and while they conceded that an accelerant was used in the burning of the car and that James did have it, this is the river, the, the crispy critter. Oh, oh yeah. so of his car. Yes. Got it. So they looked at, they looked at his car and that there was an accelerant used and that he did have an enormous hole in his head. Meaning gasoline. Uh, Some kind of accelerant. Sure. Probably. But something to help the car burn faster. Lighter fluid. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They believe that he himself added that accelerant. And then, uh, as we said, jumped in the car. And he got in the car. And hung out it until it burned. Sure. And the hole in his head was caused by the fire. Honestly, it would have been less suspicious to me. They'd been like, yeah, he got in the car and then shot himself. That would have, I would have been like, okay, like that's fucking weird. But all right. Because no one wants to sit there in a fucking car that's burning. But no. Um <laughs> No, they said the hole in his head is caused by the fire, which is just a foolproof theory. I think we can all agree. Um, (laughs) Anyway, they say that there's nothing suspicious there. He definitely wasn't present at Diana's accident and is in no way involved in her death. And we should all move along. Mm, So, sure. Yeah. Operation Paget's investigators were able to dig more deeply into the ring issue, and they believe that they that they proved that the jeweler was lying, which is to say the jeweler was never, never able to prove that the ring had been seen and picked by Diana. And they concluded that she had never seen the ring, that Dodie had probably intended to propose the evening of the crash. This directly contradicts what Muhammad said, but the investigators felt confident that Diana was not engaged when she died. Here's a lovely little howdy do, too. Remember that letter that Diana gave her butler not long before she died? Yes. Expressing a fear that the royal family was planning to have her killed in a car accident? Well, turns out that she had given that same letter to her lawyer. And after her death, you know, in a car accident, her lawyer passed that letter onto a senior metropolitan police officer back in 97. But it was not sent to the French authorities until 2003. Oh, fascinating. Because no one in the Metropolitan Police Force evidently thought it was relevant. Mm-hmm. So Operation Paget, Paget, uh, I keep calling, I keep wanting to call it Paget. I don't know why they call it Paget. Oh, um, anyway. Oh, it's probably, wait, is it Paget? They called it, they're not French. Okay. These are English. They called it Paget pa- over and over again. Oh, I was thinking like a, like a pageant. Yeah, me too. And I have a cold. So it sounds like I'm saying, like, I can't say pageant, but I'm saying pageant. Okay, got it. Um, so Operation Pageant was obliged to look into this, but they basically decided that they were the accidentally prescient ramblings of a woman who was constantly concerned for her security. Oh. And there really wasn't anything of value being discovered totally. in these letters. You know, women are crazy. That is that is how it works. It, that's science. Yeah. So It's the emotion. Yeah. We just, it just drives us nuts yeah. all the time. Feeling things. Also the moon. You know, the moon. I don't know if anyone knew about that, but the moon also makes us nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. us, though. Mm-hmm. Nope. Doesn't have affect anyone else. Um, in between these letters and the accusation from Richard Tomlinson about MI6 and their plans to assassinate a Serbian leader in the same manner, 
one witness claimed was how Diana died, British investigators felt that they needed to access MI6's files. So they called up MI6 and they were like, hey, super pretty please, can we have access to all of your files with like absolutely nothing being off limits in order to verify that the royal family isn't involved with the death of the most popular royal of this generation and the mother of two young children, one of whom is the future king? Because for sure, if they are involved, that is the end of the monarchy. And there will be major, major changes to how this country is run. Can we schedule that super chill meeting where we come in and do as much digging around as we want? And you definitely don't like hide anything from us. And can we schedule it for two weeks out so you have tons of time to hide things from us? Uh-huh. And MI6 was like, for sure. Oh, yeah. And so those investigators trotted on down there, hand, hand in hand, two pretty best friends. God, And they were supposedly given what is referred to as God's access mm. and came to the conclusion that MI6 was in no way involved with the death of Diana. Of course. Case fucking closed. I'm so um, curious how much money changed hands during this whole process. <laughs> but the funnier part for me is them like telling this shit in the dark. And they're like, there are some things, of course, we can't disclose to you because we were able to see some things that, you know, had nothing to do with the case that were interesting, but we didn't see anything related to the case. And I'm like, how weird. Yeah. How strange. And they were like, and MI6 keeps excellent records, you know? And I'm like, I bet they do. Mm -hmm. I bet they do. I bet they don't have like two sets of books, like a bookie would. I'm sure they don't. Absolutely I'm sure not. They don't. No. I'm sure. Um, another tactic taken by the British police in their quest to assure the public that there wasn't any reason to believe in these conspiracy theories um, because was because Diana was unstable and her fears or concerns were not to be trusted. Sure. Yeah. They did go so far as to allow that she had some reason to be emotionally unstable, not because the royal family had mentally and emotionally abused and discarded her, but because the press and their efforts to sell as many magazines and papers as possible exposed every aspect of her personal and private life. Mm. Thank you for allowing her that. Um, still, because she was characterized as mentally unstable and because even those she trusted seemed to go along with it uh, when they were doing these these um, investigations, any evidence that came from her, such as the note or the steadfast belief that the royal family was looking to hurt her, was just basically considered to be the rotten fruit of a paranoid mind. Hmm. Um, so it came as no surprise when the investigators of Operation Paget, Paget, whatever the fuck, came to the same conclusion as the French investigators, which it kind of felt like was their goal, if I'm being honest. But they did want it to look very official. Uh, so they also called a coroner's inquest, where all of this evidence was presented on October 2nd, 2007. Muhammad Al-Fayed got to put on his show, which included images of Prince Philip consorting with Nazi-esque types prior to World War II. And a lot of the accusations we've been over, while British investigators argued their case that focused on assuring the public that there were a number of strange dinks that meant nothing, and that Diana was the victim of a drunk driver on a dark road in the dead of night, and she should have been wearing a seatbelt. And on April 7th, 2008, the jury came to the verdict that Diana and Dodie were unlawfully killed as a result of gross negligence of the driver, Henri Paul, and the paparazzi. Contributing factors included the impairment of the judgment of the driver of the Mercedes, Henri Paul, through alcohol, and that none of those who died were wearing a seatbelt. And that was essentially that. Diana's funeral, which of course occurred in, in 97 and not in 2008 which is like when the last of the official hoopla over, over her death took place, was a no less controversial affair. At first, it was uncertain whether or not she would be afforded an, uh, an official like ceremonial funeral since she had lost her title. But the royal family decided not to render themselves the most unfucking popular people of all time, and they went ahead and gave her all the bells and whistles. 
This was probably because Diana's death was met with extraordinary public expression of grief, and thusly her funeral at Westminster Abbey on September 6, 1997, drew an estimated three million mourners and onlookers in London. Mm. Outside the Abbey and in Hyde Park, crowds watched and listened to proceedings on large outdoor screens and speakers as guests filed in, including representatives of the many charities of which Diana was patron. Attendees included U.S. First Lady Hillary Clinton and French First Lady Bernadette Chirac, as well as celebrities such as uh, Luciano Pavarotti and two friends of Diana, George Michael and Elton John. Oh, I do you remember this. Uh, Elton John performed a rewritten version of his song Candle in the Wind that was dedicated yes. to her known as Goodbye England's Rose. Yeah. Or, yeah, that single became the best-selling single since the UK and US singles chart started in the 1950s, with total sales exceeding 33 million units. Wow. Protocol was disregarded when the guests applauded the speech by Earl Spencer, Diana's brother, who strongly criticized the press and indirectly criticized the royal family uh, for the way they treated her. I bet it was indirect. No one else wanted to die. Uh, that was probably awkward, to be honest. Um, the funeral is estimated to have been watched by 31.5 million viewers in Britain. Precise calculation of the worldwide audience is not possible, but it was estimated to be around 2.5 billion. Wow. The ceremony was broadcast to 200 countries in 44 languages. The royal family had very much screwed the pooch by adhering strictly to protocol in the days following Diana's death. They did not issue a statement. They did not make themselves visible. Word got around that they were apathetic about Diana's death, and their reaction, or the lack thereof, was touted by many as further proof of their cruelty towards the erstwhile princess. The queen finally issued a statement about a week after her death, expressing her affection for Diana and the pain that she felt at her loss, which mollified some but not all of the public. And then, the, then at the funeral, she did something she'd never done before or since becoming queen. When Diana's body passed her, she bowed her head low, which is a thing the Queen of England does for no one. Maybe it was genuine affection. Maybe it was calculated. We'll never know, but it worked. People were delighted that she'd honored Diana in that way. That's some like crazy. I mean, what? I did, <laughs> that yeah. You've never bowed your head. <laughs> I, it was if you watch it like I went through and watched it a few times. Um, she does. I mean, it's not like a little like curt bow. It's like she really does the full thing. And it, it, the Queen of England doesn't do that to anyone for anyone. Okay. But what hilariously, maybe not hilariously, Lizzie's sister, Anne, who was right next to Lizzie and whom with whom Diana reportedly had a contentious relationship, did jack shit when Diana passed. Oh, so, shit. Some shit does not die with you. Um, Diana's coffin was driven to Althorpe in a Daimler hearse. Mourners cast flowers at the funeral procession for almost the entire length of its journey and vehicles even stopped on the opposite carriageway of the M1 motor motorway as the cars passed. In a private ceremony, Diana was buried on an island in the middle of a lake called the Oval, which is part of the Pleasure Garden at Althorpe. In her coffin, she wears a black Catherine Walker dress and black tights and is holding a rosary in her hands. The rosary had been a gift from Mother Teresa, a confidant of Diana who had died the day before her funeral. A visitor's center is open during the summer months with an exhibition about Diana and a walk around the lake. All profits are donated to Diana Princess of Wales Memorial Fund. Side note, Prince Charles has never visited her grave. Of course not. I wouldn't either. I don't have anything nice to say. Anyway, tell you me about it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't visit if her? If I were Prince Charles, I don't think I would. I don't think I would. Well... If I were Prince Charles, Prince Charles being who he is, I wouldn't. If I were me, I'd be like, oh, I should go so I don't look like a dick. I don't think he cares. 
Yeah. I don't, I don't think that man's ego. I'm like, have you seen a mirror, sir? I'm sorry. But also recently I saw a video where he literally like snarled at people like show, like bared his teeth, like a wild animal. That's fucking weird. Have you seen all the controversy since he became king about like how he's just really fussy, like a pen leaked in his hands and he lost his shit. This is the moment when he showed his teeth. Did he really? That's hilarious. That's hilarious. But I was like, that is bizarre ass behavior. Well, I mean, you think about it. This dude has never been told no. The only time he yeah. was ever told no is when his he wanted to marry Camilla. And his mom was like, nah. And it really doesn't like, it wasn't even like, maybe it was, like we said, she she didn't like Camilla that much, you know, but it was just proto. It was just like, that's not, this has nothing to do with what I want or don't want. You got to marry a virgin. She got to be young. She got to be a noble. This is the what it is. Right. I will say that it like the way that it worked out with Diana and Charles is why William got to marry who he wanted. Yes, I know. I thought about that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because Kate Middleton is not nobility. But they were like, we can't take any more of this. It will be the end of the monarchy. It isn't the 1800s when there's not the Internet. Well, you know, like, right. we just can't have any more future kings of Elan talking about wanting to be a tampon shoved up inside a, a girl's <laughs> vagine. Like, we can't do this. This, is, this isn't this is going to work out. Uh, well, should we look at her uh, her chart here? Yeah. OK, so here we go. It's a It's a really fascinating chart. So let me dive in. Before I get into some of the meteor stuff, right off, her midheaven is in the 11th house, which in whole sign houses, it can happen that way, but it's not very common. But that's the house of audiences, among other things. So the midheaven tells me about career, a person's reputation. So right away, I know that this is someone who, because of their career, which, you know, her career was being a royal, yeah. will be seen by a huge audience. And the other thing about it is that the 11th house is the humanitarian house, right? It's overseen by Aquarius and Aquarius is the sign most interested in the community. So her humanitarian work makes a lot of sense with her midheaven here in the 11th house. That's the first thing. Okay. Let's look at this T-square that she has in her chart. She has a big T-square. So she's got moon in Aquarius and it's being opposed by Uranus in Leo in the ninth house. The moon rules our emotional landscape, our feelings, our internal needs, and Uranus is rebellion, shocks, upheaval. Aquarius is the sign of the collective like we were just talking about, right? It's the community at large. So with her moon here, she's someone whose emotions were aligned with the collective. She was a humanitarian. She cared about the sick and the poor and the collective looked upon her emotionally, you could say, right? Like they had a lot of tenderness for her. They really loved her. She was beloved by the collective, right? Because of her tenderness. This is correct. But there are shocks for her around this. And there's a sense of rebellion around this. And I think, you know, her humanitarian efforts are a great example of that. The way she went against the grain in her philanthropic work in a way that was like shocking and sort of rebellious and revolutionary, you know, in a way that like royals had never done before. But more than that, there's there's a piece here that I think is bigger. There's major upheaval to her emotional landscape that will happen when you have Uranus opposing the moon emotional shocks and upsets, right? And because Uranus is in Leo in the ninth house, 
these shocks are being published. They're being broadcast to the world. They're in the spotlight. Everyone's going to know about these emotional upheavals. Now, the T-square tells us about the resolution of the conflict. And for Diana, it's Venus in the house of work. And her Venus, so when you have a T-square, you have that opposition, but then you have sort of the apex of the configuration that is squaring both of these other placements. So for her squaring her moon and um, Uranus. So what is squaring it? It's Venus. Okay. So, and it's in her sixth house of work. Her Venus is being trined by Saturn in the second, her second house of wealth. Okay. So let's think about this. Let's break it down. Saturn is tradition. It's the patriarchy. It is the royal family, essentially, in other words. So what we have is a marriage, Venus, a kind of love arrangement that's more about work than love. We're in the sixth house, Venus and Taurus in the sixth house of work to someone in a position of tradition and wealth. That's Venus trying Saturn in the second house as a result of emotional upsets. So what I actually think this is telling us is that she was looking for stability and that's what she wanted this marriage to be, right? Cause we're in Taurus. That's Venus in Taurus love mm. that is stable. These emotional upsets that would eventually be published and broadcast. I actually think in this um, configuration in this T square are from her childhood and her family of origin, right? So she's having these emotional upsets. She wants stability. And she went into the marriage thinking she would finally find some solid ground. There was tradition there, right? This trying to Saturn. There was financial security. And there was the promise of a husband who loved her and would have to stay married to her because that was tradition. So that's what I'm seeing with this configuration that she was looking for stability in this marriage. Oh, poor baby. We're yes, because we're in the house of work in Taurus. And that's about luxury, finances, tradition. This is a marriage founded on formalities and on money, not on intimacy. And that's what she was really looking for. You know, Diana was a cancer and she was born with a son in cancer in the eighth house. So let's take a look at this. This is the house Scorpio oversees, as we know, the eighth house. It's the house of death, rebirth, sexuality, money, power, sorrow. So what's interesting to me about having your son in the eighth house, like the 12th house, the eighth house is a house of shadows, right? It's where things go to be hidden. Scorpio likes hidden things. Scorpio rules the eighth house. Pisces also likes hidden things. Pisces rules the 12th house. But the sun is the brightest flashlight in the zodiac. It reveals what is in the shadows. It's a celestial floodlight. And what does a bright light do to shadows? It shows us what's hidden away. It reveals secrets. So this is part of the journey of anyone who has sun in the eighth house. There's going to be a tendency to refuse to be a part of secrets. And in fact, to expose secrets and hidden things. But that's a painful path, right? Because it's part of what incites the death and rebirth process that you see with Scorpio. And that's just the other reality of sun in the eighth house. The eighth house 
is a sorrowful house. It can be very powerful, but it's also sorrowful, which is not to say it's a bad house, right? But it's the house of deep transformation and transformation is painful. People who avoid pain are people who don't grow. So this house, while it's incredibly powerful, comes with heartache because a death and rebirth process is by nature painful. So when I see someone's son here, you know, the sun is your identity, your, your essence. I already know that not only are there going to be some huge transformations in this person's life, but also that a part of their identity, because that's the sun, right? May very well involve sorrow. In Diana's case, she has the sun conjunct Mercury here in the eighth house. A conjunction is when two placements are the same or very near each other. Mercury oversees how we think, how we communicate, which means that there's an aspect of Diana's communication that reveals secrets, right? Her Mercury is in on this process. It's conjunct this process. So she's literally just going to use her mouth hole and make a decree unto the world that exposes secrets and also that exposes sorrows, right? Like, see, Queenie should have seen her chart before she invited her to marry Charles. That's all I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. They had no idea. Mistakes were made. Yeah. And so the other part of this is like the secrets could be her own secrets, right? Her like hidden painful transformation she went through. But of course, all of those involve the royal family. So yeah, I was going to say she's going, but she's taking some people with her. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about cancer with these cancer. And you and I were just talking about this the other day. Cancer is the new Gemini, right? This is the Mm -hmm. hottest of hot takes, right? (laughs) But where is the lie? People think Gemini rule duplicity, but honestly, cancer runs either super hot or super cold. When a cancer is loving, they're so loving. But if you criticize a cancer, they become cold as ice, honey, good fucking luck getting a cancer to come out of their shell. Once you provide some feedback. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we see both of these with her. All the humanitarian stuff we see with Princess Di, the ability to love and nurture in these deep and all-encompassing and sort of fearless ways to care for people who are on the verge of death or in these deeply sorrowful places in their lives, that is peak cancer in the eighth house. Cancer embodies that maternal nurturing energy, eighth house rules death and sorrow, so that all checks out. But cancer does not respond well to critique. And I think whereas Scorpio is known for being like vengeful, and that's true in the sense that Scorpio is more likely to like slash your tires or like revenge fuck your boyfriend. Cancer can also be, you know this about Scorpio. I mean, I have a Scorpio on Venus, so. Yeah. Yes, I know. know. (laughs) Yes, the desire for vengeance runs deep. It runs deep and strong, but we don't talk about it out loud. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I do. (laughs) But cancer can also be super petty if they feel attacked. Like, oh, that's so true. Yes, they would most certainly go to the press with some tea. And that's even more the case because she has that sun Mercury conjunction. She's just like, hi, hello. I have a story to tell you. and I don't give a fuck if it's a royal secret. Now, I'll bring this up because it's only fair. We've seen Sun conjunct Mercury before several times, and I've talked about the shadow side of it, which is narcissism. And that's because Mercury controls how we think and the sun oversees the ego and the self, right? So that conjunction can absolutely indicate someone who just thinks about themselves, right? 
Now it's in cancer, which mitigates that because cancer likes to care for others. It can be very other focused. But what I could see happening is someone wanting to be seen as maternal and caring, but it's more about what's in it for them or what they hope to accomplish from it than about the people who are ailing. It's a possibility. And I want to be fair and name it. I can see that. I I mean, and I have met people who are like that. I don't know what their signs were, but I have suspicions. I don't. I don't get that vibe in my research on Diana. The one area that I was like, oh, die, was when I felt that, and this is just me, that she leaned on her children in a way that I felt was me focused. Um, yeah. Yeah. She absolutely parentified her kids. And that's absolutely another way that it could have shown up because cancer rules the mother. Yeah. And the me focus in mothering. Yeah. That's a great point. That's another way it could have shown up. Me, the being me focused in mothering, which is what parentification is. And by the way, if you don't know about parentification, I oh. just put an, oh. an episode out on the Patrama party. <laughs> the Patrama party. Always a time to plug. Because, well, and also because if a lot of times people who are parentified don't know it. And that's why I think it's a very important thing to talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, are you Gen X? If you're Gen X, you need to listen to this podcast episode. You were parentified. Okay. I mean, not necessarily, but okay. Mm, pretty much necessarily. <laughs> the other thing I want to say about Diana, though, is that because she has that midheaven in the 11th house, which is the humanitarian house that Aquarius oversees, uh, that's another reason why I don't really think that her humanitarian efforts were like an effort to kind of uh, get acknowledged in a certain way. Um, okay. Anyway, now let's get into this. The bulk of the hard part of her chart is in two places where we see very important oppositions and conjunctions. We're looking at the Virgo Pisces axis and the Aquarius Leo axis. So let's start with Leo. She's got Leo in the ninth house and she's got her North node here, conjunct Uranus. The North Node is where our soul wants to expand in this lifetime, what we want to learn, our destiny. Uranus wants to break out of tradition, wants to be outside the box, wants to be forward thinking. So this is someone whose destiny it is to disrupt tradition, to sort of throw conventions out the window. And we're in Leo, which means this destiny is meant to happen in the spotlight. It's meant to be at the center of attention. And we're in the ninth house, which is the house of international travel and broadcasting. So this disrupting of tradition will have a global impact and be talked about broadcast the world over, right? Because that's ninth house. But here's the thing. Her north node is at 29 degrees of Leo. And that's what we call the anoretic degree. It's a placement in astrology that points to a crisis of some kind when you see 29 degrees. When the North node is at 29 degrees, we're looking at a crisis that happens because something is too much. So here we're looking at a crisis that happens because this need to break outside of tradition is too much in some way. And it's too much in the spotlight because we're in Leo. That's part of the crisis. Now that conjunction, as we kind of talked about before, is opposing Diana's moon because we talked about Uranus opposite the moon, which means it's standing in opposition to her emotional landscape. It's causing deep friction with her emotional well-being, which we talked about earlier at length. Not just that, but also 
because wherever there's a North node, there is a South node 180 degrees away. It also means that Diana's moon, which is at 25 degrees of Aquarius is conjunct her South node, which is at 29 degrees of Aquarius, Ooh. which is the critical anoretic degree, right? Whereas the North node anoretic degree tells us that something is too much. The crisis related to the South node anoretic degree is a crisis of lack of not enoughness. So what I see here is that we're these there were these huge upheavals and crises in her life around the ways that she was breaking free from some of the conservative royal traditions. She was kind of this rebel and troublemaker and the impact was big. I mean, royal divorce, which is kind of unheard of, right? And this exact crisis was at odds with her being able to get her emotional needs met. Remember, she was looking for stability. There was literally a lack of love, <laughs> There's a ton of rebellion, but that same crisis of over-the-top rebellion is creating a crisis of devastating loneliness. The next big thing I see in Diana's chart is a kite. A kite helps us see a vision through with success. It's a grand trine with an opposition from one of the points in the trine and then two sextals. Let's, let's start. I'm just saying that in case people care, but let's start. Let's break this down and look at what the grand trine means. The grand trine is connecting her Chiron and Pisces in the house of family to Neptune and Scorpio in the house of mental health and secrets to her sun moon conjunction, sorry, sun Mercury conjunction in cancer in the eighth house. We've already talked about the sun Mercury point. So let's talk about Chiron and Pisces in the fourth house, which makes all the fucking sense. Chiron rules our deepest wounds and our healing journeys. And the fourth house is the house of family. <laughs> oh, yay. Yay. Pisces wants no boundaries. It wants the kind of connection where you can't tell where one person ends and the other begins. Chiron in Pisces also is the wound of victimhood, feeling like there's no way anyone else could know a pain like their own. You could have one without the other here, right? But I wanted to name that because we've seen it on here many times. And again, Chiron and Pisces can show up as narcissism. So maybe she had the connection wound of like really deeply wanting to connect and not the victim narcissism wound, or maybe the other way around, or maybe some of both. But what we can say without question is that she was fucked up emotionally over her family situation. Oh yeah. Both in childhood and as an adult, major, just all, everywhere you look, pain with the family, major wounds with the family. Neptune in Scorpio is fascinating in the 12th house because also Neptune is the ruler of the 12th house, right? The ruler Pisces. And, and also the 12th house rules the things we hide away. So like actually hospitals fall under the 12th house and sick people, because culturally we hide these things away. We hide the ailing, right? So Scorpio isn't afraid to look into the darkness. It's not afraid to see what other people turn away from. That's the Scorpio superpower. They don't need anything to be nice and pretty. And then Neptune is deeply altruistic and dreamy when it's in a positive aspect, which a grand trine is. You have a person who has very high ideals and, and um, an altruistic nature. So what I see is 
a person who's not afraid to look at sick people in hidden spaces, hospitals, infirmaries, et cetera. And in fact, isn't just going to look is going to work to help them. That's Neptune to heal them. That's, you know, healthy Neptune is the healer and the altruist. And that's one way this can show up. But the other thing I see here is someone who can deceive themselves about secrets and things that are hidden because Neptune's shadow is about deceit. It's about illusions. It's about making you think that something is one thing. It's about being completely out of touch with reality and having all of this wishful thinking. So Scorpio looks at the secrets that are in the 12th house and then has an overly idealistic view about them, AKA I'm just going to tell the world I'm having an affair and I'll get to keep my marriage. (laughs) That's how that works in my experience. Just because she can handle looking those secrets right in the face doesn't mean anyone else can. Right. So this is part of the, um, the part of the issue. Right. And this is directly connected to her pain with family. To be fair, I think the bigger issue was that she got up there and was like, I don't think he'd be a good king, which like was not a secret that she felt that way. And a lot of people felt that way. But again, you don't say it out loud on a newscast. (laughs) And that's this third point in the Grand Trine is that Sun-Mercury conjunction, which is really about exposing secrets, speaking your mind, right? Just like Hey, this is who I am. This is what I think. And I'm going to tell anyone. So we've got deep family wounds, an ability to look at secrets and delude ourselves about what they could, the consequences of them, right? And a propensity to be very vocal about secret things. This is the grand trine. These are all things that are going to feed each other that will come so naturally to Diana. She won't even know it's happening because that's what grand trines do. They make us sort of it's such an easy flow that we don't even think about it. Right. You know, she'll kind of just be like, hi, hello. We're the Royal family. We're cheating on each other. He's going to be a shit King. And that's fine. Right. Like everyone's, everyone's fine that I just said that (laughs) the next part of the kite is the opposition. And for Diana, it's between Chiron and Pluto and they are. Yeah, here we go. They are exactly opposed They are each at six degrees. Chiron in Pisces in the fourth house of family, Pluto in Virgo in the 10th house of career and reputation. First, we just need to talk about this Pluto. Pluto in the 10th house is mega power in your career and reputation. Huge power, big money, big greed, big secrets, big scandal like deceit, violence, power struggles, underhandedness, right? And when it's opposing Chiron, there's just no way to avoid, uh, exactly opposing Chiron. There's no way to avoid a very painful wound around this. When I look at this, I just think that there was no way for her to successfully wield this power, this Pluto power. Mm. It was just too big for any one person to take on when you see that opposition to Chiron. It's going to fucking hurt. And then on top of it, Mars is conjunct Pluto by five degrees. Mars is violence and the body and Pluto is death, right? So we have this wound of family that's at odds with Pluto who oversees power, death, deceit, lies, underhandedness, and Mars who oversees violence and the physical body. 
So this isn't a hypothetical death, right? Because we've got this Mars. It's not the death of a relationship or an identity. It is the death of the physical body in this struggle with family wounds. Oh. And then, do you see what I'm saying? I see where you're going. And then on top of it, Pluto is then sextiling the, the sun moon conjunction in the eighth house where she exposes secrets and Neptune in the 12th house where she's deluding herself about the consequences of exposing those secrets. Mm. So we, do you see what's happening here? Chiron opposite Pluto conjunct Mars and then sex telling these like places where she's telling secrets. This is happening in the house of family. I mean, if you're asking me whether I think there was something underhanded about her death, something deceitful and whether her family had something to do with it and whether it was related to her telling secrets. I mean, that is just literally what her chart says. And then her chart says that this is going to have an effect on her physical body. Yes. Mars is the physical body. Yes. Mm. I'll end with this. Of course, Diana has a yacht. Of course she does. Of course. And this yacht is no fucking joke. So to review, a yod, sometimes called the finger of God or the finger of fate, is when you have a central point and then two points that are quincunx, that central point, meaning they're each 150 degrees away, give or take, from the central point. The central point tells us about a critical life-changing decision that this person will have to make. And the other two points tell us what the circumstances are that lead up to this decision how we got here, what laid the foundation for this crisis. For Diana, the central point is Jupiter in Aquarius in the third house. The third house is the house of communication and Aquarius rules the collective. Jupiter wants everything to be big. It wants expansion. So we're looking at some kind of massive communication with the collective, maybe an interview with the world, maybe a huge book deal, right? Etc. This is the decision she has to make. What's setting the stage is that Sun Mercury conjunction in Scorpio, which is all about exposing secrets, and that Pluto Mars conjunction in the house of career, which is power struggles, deceit, the propensity for physical death in the areas concerning her career. What she decides about whether or not to communicate in this big way determines her fate. And that is the astrology of Princess Diana. You know what annoys me so much about that? Diana did this interview, the Martin Bashir interview that we went over and how he kind of basically tricked her into giving it. Allegedly. Uh, he claims he didn't. Whatevs. Charles gave one before she did. And he got up there and announced that he was unfaithful to her. And it made him more popular. He became more popular after that. Right. I, not not Lizzie popular. She was one of the most popular. I think she was the most popular queen probably since the first Elizabeth. But they were like, well, you know, men make mistakes. Yeah, I mean, you know, it happens. Whatever. It's like, I mean, they're like just all of the excusing that went into right. that. Uh, and not to say that there weren't plenty of people who were like, nah, fuck that. That's gross. But what I'm saying is. When she did it, there was this huge outcry. And I'm like, were we not aware that they were? I mean, he did get up there not too long before. And we did listen to him announce how he wanted to be, you know. Her her menstruation product. Yeah. I'm like, come on now. Like, it's a problem because she did it. And that's why I really think. 
I really think that like it had everything to do with her saying, I don't think that he'd be a good king. And because, and I only think that that's a problem because A, I think it's true. <laughs> and B, I think that it's not, it wasn't like a thing that wasn't said. I think it was murmured in hallways. I think probably the staff was like, oh, this guy's going to fucking suck at this job. You know, he just doesn't have the temperament for it. And I think that her saying it out loud, someone who had spent that kind of time with him, who had his children, being like, yeah, I actually just don't think this guy is built for the job. I think that was just one step too far. Well, and here's the thing with that midheaven conjunct Uranus, where it's basically like her in the anoretic degree, where it's like there is a crisis of too much rebellion. It was like they weren't ready for a woman to be making the kind of declarations that she was for and to be fucking with the patriarchy and with with the fan the royal family in the way that she was right like it was yeah ahead of her time and it was directly at odds with her emotional well-being and i think she i think diana really wanted stability and she really she wanted a family to kind of come in and swoop in and and support her in the way that she didn't feel supported growing up but she couldn't hold back. She couldn't, she yeah. couldn't, she just couldn't see that like all of that anger around what was happening, it was justified, but talking about it to the public the way that she did was going to have consequences that were just way over her head. Yeah. I mean, I, and I honestly think that no matter, I, I think she could have gone into that marriage and been peaches and cream and sugar and spice and everything nice. And that he still would have cheated on her with Camilla because oh, absolutely. He, probably, he should have just married Camilla yeah. and that, and you know, I mean that that's, that's what should have happened from the beginning for everybody. But I, I, I don't think that there's anything she could have done that would have stopped what happened in terms of the marriage. But yeah, like she was definitely, I mean, she said in the interview, you know, that I will not go quietly. They were like, why don't, you know, she was like the Royal family knows, like they know I will not be going quietly. They're not, they, cause he's asked her, he was like, why don't they just send you away? And she's like, Oh, I won't go. <laughs> she's like, no, no, I will not be doing that. And I think once she announced that, you know, if anything were nefarious, allegedly, uh, if anyone were to decide in that moment, allegedly to make some moves in that way, that would have been the moment you realized you're just going to, it's, you're just, there's no amount of money. You're not going to be able to give her anything, you know, you're just going to have to make her disappear. Like, I mean, there's just, yeah. there's no way around it. And there was no way, I, the, I I wonder about this too, if, for example, someone in the royal family had decided that the time had come for Diana to part, did they, did they realize they were going to make her a martyr because that's what they did. Right. They made her a martyr. And I mean, even now, now, you know, Elizabeth died what a month ago now and for weeks all anybody talked about was diana mm. and then he became king and the first thing that happened is like i'm seeing you know the thing with the pen and the various like he's just just some just things that i would be like you know there are cameras on you dude the first thing i see is people being like well she called it you know she did say that he was not gonna be he didn't have the temperament for this and i'm just like y'all you really think you're smarter than <laughs> You really think that like you can outrun yourself because she was right. Yeah. You know, she was right. And I swear to God, because if I'm not, I'm not British. So I can't, I can't say that these sort of things speak to me the way they do the British people. But you can see like the pageantry. If you watch old videos of like him dressing up in like the cape and the thing when he was like a kid and he was goofy looking as fuck. 
oh my god that guy looks like a cartoon character as a teenager he and does you know, look like it wait he looks like what is that cartoon with the kid with the big ears oh fuck i don't remember but i know what you're talking about you know and it was like uh it was like pencil sketches and he had like big buck teeth yeah oh my god, god. and the, when he was a kid and like elizabeth was like trotting him out and being like yeah here's your future you know and i was like that's embarrassing I would put that away like because it's just so it was just so funny looking and this kid you know grew up getting literally whatever he I mean literally whatever he wanted you know yeah. Yeah. I mean that guy looked like that and there were still women throwing themselves at him because he was the future king of England I mean, that's, a, of that's a pretty heady you know I mean sure yeah. I can see that but just like can you imagine like I mean the thing what made I think Elizabeth so uniquely suited other than the fact that she grew up in a time of when things were difficult, she was a woman. She knew she had to earn respect, mm. you know? Yeah. Like probably why Elizabeth one was so good. I'm like, y'all haven't learned. You should patch, pass this down matrilineally. Your Kings are not, I mean, you have a few in there, but for the most part, your Kings are rough. My guy. Like, yeah. Should we talk yeah. about Henry the eighth? Like we, you know, like I haven't done extensive research, but I bet if I looked into it, I bet there, you know, there's some speaking of embarrassing secrets back there. I bet there's some weird shit. Yeah. You know, and I think that Meghan Markle probably shows that things haven't changed much. Yeah. No, absolutely. No, it, it hasn't even been that long since Diana died. No, it's only been what, 25 years? 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. 25 years. Yeah. Speaking of years, on a completely unrelated note, I watched Edward Scissor Hands the other Scissor Scissor Hands the other day and realized. <laughs> That would be a porn. Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> oh my God. That is totally the porn version. <laughs> that is the porn version. Oh my God. And oh, ew, what a weird fucking fetish. It's like everyone's fucking, but they all have scissor hands. <laughs> and there's or like a bunch of women scissoring. Scissoring with scissor hands. With scissor hands. Yeah. And like Edward Scissorhands is there, maybe scissoring or like maybe cutting their hair in the background. I don't oh know. My whatever God. he does. Well, so that movie is fucking 32 years old. What? I know. What? It's very upsetting. What are yeah. you talking about? It came out in 1990, which means it's almost 33 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's all it's all fucked. Showing all of my like I told you this, I put this on my Facebook that someone I saw someone on my Instagram being like, Oh, I got this great vintage haul from a, this thrift store about these like this forever twenty one stuff from the nineties. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? It's Excuse the saddest. me. I remember I remember being in high school and being like, One day I'll be twenty one. I remember when I was 19 or 20, I was 20 and my best friend at the time had just turned 22 and she was like morose and she was like, it's all downhill from here. Oh, I'm 22. Oh my God. I went through that exact, exact thing at 23. I was like, oh, there's nothing else to look forward to. <laughs> it just, at the time, it just made me laugh. I wasn't 21 yet. So, you know, which is what she said to me. She was like, you don't know. You don't, you don't know. understand. You're still young. And I was like, you're literally 22. I'm going to need you to take a step back from the cliff. It's, it's okay. It's going to be okay. You're young and gorgeous. It's going to be okay. Fuck. If only we'd known. Yeah, I know. I'm what 43 now. She's 45. I should call her and be like, how's it feel? <laughs> and the truth is 40s is still young, man. When you think about the fact that we live to be like in our 90s now. Some of us. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of us will live to be in our 90s. The median age for death for women. I could be off of it, but I think it's like 76. 
Okay, girl. Well, men is a little younger. It's like 72 or 74 or something. We live a little longer. Well, anyway, what I'm (laughs) trying... Sorry to bring you down. (laughs) Anyway, whatever. What I'm trying to say is we're still young in our 40s. Yeah. I have two kids. I don't feel that way. (laughs) Except for you. (laughs) I don't know. I've talked to a lot. I mean, I think all of us coming out of this pandemic, all my parent friends are just like, oh, I feel like I've aged 10 years. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> trapped inside with my children for two years. I love them, but they're feral. So yeah. Yeah. They're feral. Oh, hey, before I forget, we have an Insta account and it is sign of the crime pod at sign of the crime pod. And, uh, is there another thing I announced? I can't remember. Is Usually that we announce what we're doing next, but we don't, I, th- I don't know that we know. I think we're doing Manson because of Halloween. Oh, because of Halloween. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I had to move some stuff around because Diana took up two parts. Yeah. So yeah, we're doing, uh, man, I'm not, Manson will not be taking two parts. I'm not letting him have two parts. He's not. No. Cool yeah. Fuck that guy. He never even killed anyone. He's just a psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing, like doing Manson is like, well, do we also do like Tex and Susan and all like the little people that were, you know, they were just lemmings doing his beddings. They were just minions. I want to see his chart. He died not too long ago, right? I think so. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he died not too long ago. Crazy till the very end from what I understand. Just fucking squirrel on a wheel up running around in there. Yeah. Cold as a witch's tit. I just wanted to use that one. Doesn't really apply. Oh, I was going to say that doesn't apply at all, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. It's Halloween era, babe. You don't need a reason. You just say it. I just wanted to, to throw in a scary one for Halloween. What was the, did we do a Halloween thing earlier that you were like, that's very Halloween timely. And I don't remember what it is now. Oh, yeah. What was it? Oh, my God. I've I don't already... know. Wow. Well, if, you, if you remember it when you do the editing, make it the title. <laughs> I don't know. I think a song of others is pretty good. <laughs> and that's on my cold. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I love you. I love you. Okay. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye.